I want to encourage you to uh, join me in the book of James, James's letter uh, to the churches scattered around the world. We're in James 1, and we're going to be flipping through uh, the letter. Jesus' younger brother James writes to the church scattered uh, throughout the world, and he uh, writes to them beginning with a very uh, stark phrase, and that's to consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. In other words, when things don't go the way that you want, things fall apart, stuff happens in your life that you're not prepared for, that you really don't want to uh, have happen to you, count it joy. Do the work of considering this to be God's way of doing something in your life. And last week we noted that we need the heavenly wisdom of God to help us do that because our inclination, our default, is not to immediately respond to trials by saying, yes, this is exactly how I wanted to spend my day. Today we shift gears a little bit because we're going to be talking about favoritism. But James talks about favoritism for a very important reason, and it's the fact that favoritism can cause significant trial for people. And it can cause us to lose sight, if we show favoritism, to lose sight of what God is up to. So as we prepare to listen to God's word, uh, would you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, open our hearts, open our minds, make us aware that your spirit is in this place, desiring to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. James 1, 9 through 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. For in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And then we're going to skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. And this in many ways is our theme verse for today. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? 
If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then down to chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So rich and listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. What is favoritism? In some ways, that's the question we have to answer before we get to James's phrase, do not show favoritism. What is favoritism? Two weeks ago, we were traveling through the Carolinas and we got to a state park and we were uh, glad to see that at this particular state park, there was a family rate, a family rate. We like family rates because there are six of us, and usually the family rate uh, means that we pay a little bit less than having to pay for everyone. But we were surprised to find out that the family rate in this case meant a, uh, a mom and a dad and three children. It seems that we had one too many. Were we not favorites? We went to a hotel that night and we stayed in a room all together. But of course, as you know, six people are not allowed to share a hotel room. The hotel favorites are those who are smaller groups. We then went to a tour, a submarine, a battleship, and a destroyer. And had to pay full price because none of us were over 62. Again, no favoritism our way. Now, we share this sort of in jest to get sort of the the thought process going about what what do we really mean when we're talking about favorites? What does it mean to be shown favoritism? Some might argue that getting the senior rate really isn't a favoritism at all. It's actually the opposite. But maybe we can quibble about that in the fellowship area after the service because that's not necessarily what James is writing about here. 
But we still haven't gotten there yet because the things that our family experienced are pretty minor, right? I I elevate them not because we later wrote a, a letter to the state park or the governor of that state to complain. We didn't write to the hotel management that we were extremely upset. These are minor things, minor inconveniences, but there are places where favoritism or the showing of favoritism is much more subtle and impacts people in a way that others of us maybe don't even realize. While restaurants have discounts for certain clientele, airlines charge more for certain clientele. Is that a favoritism or a reverse favoritism? What about housing laws? In our area, you can't have a multifamily dwelling. Even if culturally or socially, that kind of way of living is natural for you. One family, one dwelling. It's a way of showing favoritism that we don't normally think about. Is that what James is talking about here? Because James is very clear. It's not hard to get around the first verse of chapter 2. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Even if restaurants or state parks or communities with housing practices or employers with certain kinds of employees, or wherever in society there might be favoritism, within these walls, there must not be any kind at all. And the reason James takes into account what's going on with wealth here is because in James' day and age, wealth was a way to keep score. And if you had, it meant that you had a a greater uh, number of pathways into communities. Right? The more wealth you had, the, more kind, uh, the higher social standing you were, the more networking you could do, the more parties you could attend, the more business contracts you could acquire, the more right, wealth brought with it, not just the ability to purchase things, it also brought social capital. And James says that's not the way you want to keep score in church as well. Because if the church does that, it makes a proclamation about what normal is. So let's take a step back a second and think about favoritism in that way. If we show favorites to a certain kind of people or a certain group of people or a certain person, in effect we are saying This is the preferred way to be. This is the preferred way to talk, the preferred way to look, the preferred way to pursue a lifestyle, the preferred way to live. 
and be. And that, of course, means that anything outside of those narrow boundaries is treated less favorably. That's a short step from saying that the way to be saved must fit within these contours. If this is normal, if this is the way that everyone in the church should be, then the lifestyle, the speech, the dress, the restaurant attendance, all of those things become part of the package when you become a Christian. That's really where James is saying favoritism has no place within the church. Because at its core, of course, the gospel is the same for everyone. Rich, poor, everyone in between. And anything to the contrary undermines, cuts down why Jesus came in the first place. The other danger, of course, is that favoritism dulls our senses, makes us less aware of how God is working. For example, back to our state park. If the state park elevates families of five, the assumption, of course, is that families of five are the best. And any family that is not a family of five is somehow demeaned, diminished, or not cared for in the same way. In other words, those families of six are less mature. Really? Four kids? Those families without kids? Really? You can't have three? We can't grow the population? Families that only come in as an individual? What's wrong with you? Only one individual person? Again, we're, we're sort of elevating the stakes, right? But we can feel the discomfort here, especially if we're not a family of five. What's wrong with us? And James is saying that subtly, if the church plays favorites, elevates marrieds over singles, Christian school over public school. Those who sit in the back versus those who sit in the front. Those who are lifelong members versus those who are new. Those who give a full 10% versus those who don't. If the church does that, all of a sudden, there becomes the sense of having and having not. And it's worth wondering. It's worth wondering if we do that. And how we might do that. Because if we do, we're subtly saying that somehow the gospel message of Jesus Christ is only best for those who fit in our small, narrow lane of preference. This is a difficult question. 
It's extremely challenging for churches to reflect on the question, where do we show favoritism? Because as a collective, if we look around the room and we wonder about ourselves, we can maybe see a little bit more honestly, individually, the kinds of people we would prefer to talk to after the service or the kinds of people we would prefer to welcome into our congregational life or the kinds of people our ministries are geared toward. But, but how do we fight against that? Actively fight against that. Because James is saying that one of the most destructive things that a church can become is a sort of social club that elevates a certain kind of people in a certain kind of way and allows that certain group to just sort of hang out in their own little place apart from what God is up to. And if favoritism imagines that God is here It misses all of the places where God is at work outside of the boundaries, outside of where we expect to see him. And we misinterpret, we misunderstand, we miss what God is asking us to do with what we've been given. Not to hoard, not to let it rot, nor to put our name on something and make ourselves great, lifting our own name up. It's fascinating that there are a number of places in the letters of the New Testament where this challenge faced God's people. It seems that in the early church, the main discrepancy, the main place of division or disunity was between those who had and those who had not. And maybe that's not our problem. Maybe that's not our issue. But it is worth wondering what is. And it's also worth acknowledging and noting the way in which the story of Jesus Christ points and ends. Not in a single focused one road, one culture, one language, but with the elevation of the kings of the earth. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. The end of Revelation chapter 21. We're going to close with these verses. In Revelation 21, most of us are aware that the new city, the bride of Jesus Christ, is coming out of heaven, right? We know that the the bride of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, the new Jerusalem is coming down. And John sees the glory and the majesty of the city, the walls, and and that Jesus and God are the the light, the temple in the middle of the city. And all of the the glory of God is, is put in this place. And we don't normally focus on these verses, but at the very end, there's something fascinating that John notes. That even the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven is incomplete. Verse uh, verse 26. 
I don't see a temple in the, this is verse 22. Uh, I didn't see a temple in the city of the Lord and the lamb or its temple. The city didn't need the sun or the moon for the glory of God was its light and the lamb was its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Not one king, the kings. And then even greater verse 26, the glory and the honors, the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nations here is the word ethnos ethnicities. Think culture. We got to see just a brief glimpse of some of the Ugandan culture. That culture is going to be brought into the city of God. The new Jerusalem comes down and then all of the greatest parts of all of the languages and all of the culture and all of the practices that bring glory and honor to God, all of those are going to be brought into the city of God for us to celebrate the glory of God for all eternity. So when we are tempted to imagine that our way of life or that we have a single hold on what the gospel means or how it should be lived out, we should remember that God, in his great plan, has at the very end of the story this wonderful moment where we, like those on a 4th of July or Memorial Day parade, watch as the kings of the earth bring in the splendor of their ethnicity, of their culture, of their way of life into the city, and it will be purified and made right and holy and good as that way of holding up the glory of God is also our way of acknowledging the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. James uses one quality to describe Jesus. It's the word glorious. And glorious, of course, is this full, abundant, overwhelming picture that not just one person can fill, not just one kind of people can fill, but all of the glories of the nations can reflect the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are called to hold up no favorites. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we're going to spend just a, a moment in silent prayer. And we would ask that your spirit would uh, prompt our hearts and elevate a way in which we, either individually or uh, as a church, might show, be showing favorites, might be emphasizing a certain kind of person or group of people over another. So open our hearts. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy church. Fill it with all truth and all truth with peace. Where it is corrupt, may you purify it. Where it is in air, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen it. Where it is in want, provide for it. 
and where it is divided, reunite it. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.